question I, I want to, I was thinking about with the prayer service is what does Jesus want his church to be? What does Jesus want our church to be? Now, every year there are a lot of leadership books from church leadership books and blogs that are written to answer this question. Every week there are multiple podcasts for church leaders that seek to answer this question. And, and most of the books and blogs and podcasts, they give good answers, they give potential answers. But there is a passage that I want us to look at tonight that gives us an answer that is often overlooked. So open your Bible to Mark 11. Uh, verse 15 through 18 is what we're going to look at tonight. If you have a pew Bible, it's page 772. Mark 11 and verse 15, it says, So Jesus came to Jerusalem. And then he went to the temple and began to drive out those who bought and sold in the temple and overturned the, ta the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he would not allow anyone to carry wares through the temple. And he taught, saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you have made it into a den of thieves. And the scribes and the chief priests heard it and sought how they might destroy him, for they feared him because all the people were astonished at his teaching. Now the passage is soon after Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And it's probably a familiar story of Jesus cleansing the temple. And this passage came to my mind yesterday while I was seeking what would be our, our focus for prayer this month. And as I was reading it, I noticed something I'd never seen before. It says after Jesus had cleansed the temple that he, he taught them. And that may not seem like a big deal, but it was significant to me for two reasons. One is, I really had never noticed this before. In my mind, I just always kind of saw Jesus going in there. and You know, John talks about him making whips, and he kicked over the stuff, and he cleansed, and he chased the people out. And, and I just saw this as him just sort of hollering as he did this, hollering at the people as he did this. So the idea of him teaching it kind of stood out. And the second thing that stood out about this was if Jesus is teaching, then he does intend for us to get it. But he intends for us to take this and to understand. I mean, it's just like he went in and he overturned all the stuff and he chased all the people out. And those that were trying to bring stuff through, he stopped them. But then he stopped what he was doing and he began to say and he just teach them about what God expected, what God intended, what God desired his house to be. Now, the modern New Testament church, it's not the, the Old Testament tabernacle, and we know that, but the principle of this being God's house is still the same. So what God intended for His house then is still applicable to what God intends for this house now. So we see two aspects of this teaching of what Jesus intends for the church to be. The first is a praying church. Right? Jesus said that it is to be a, a house of prayer. Now, you've likely noticed we've tried to add more prayer to all of our services. And we've done this for two reasons. Right? First, we do want to be a beacon of hope. I mean, that's what it says on our sign. That's what we put on the, the slideshows is that we are a beacon of hope. But the reality is we cannot be a beacon of hope without being a praying church. Prayer connects us to God, His promises, and His power. And without God, His promises, and His power, there is no hope to shine out into the sea of despair around us. Because that's what we have to actually shine out. It is, it is God, it is His promises, and it is His power. So if we want to be a beacon of hope, we've got to be a praying 
church. At the same time, we see that Jesus wants our church to be a praying church, so we should be a praying church. Just the the idea that Jesus wants this for us should be a motivating factor for us to be a praying church. Now, most churches pray, but not every church that prays is a praying church. There are at least four characteristics of praying churches. The first is prioritized prayer. Right, A praying church prays as a priority. It's not an afterthought. It's not something that's added in. They, they pray every time that they gather. Right, Paul told the, the church in Colossae to continue earnestly in prayer, being vigilant in it in prayer with thanksgiving. And I like the way that it's worded because to me I saw three parts to the command. The first is to continue earnestly in prayer or to be devoted to prayer. But the idea of continuing earnestly is to, to pray and keep on praying. It is a strong determination to pray and to keep on praying. It's a determination that says, no matter what else I do, I'm going to pray. But that's a prioritized prayer for the church. That no matter what else we do when we gather, we're going to pray. And we're going to keep praying every time that we gather. Now to be vigilant in prayer is to be alert. The word vigilant, it's a military term, and it's used to describe what a soldier is supposed to be while on guard duty. Alert and aware of their surroundings, looking for the enemy, careful to observe all that's going on around them. And we are to be aware and alert in prayer. Aware and alert of the need of prayer. Aware and alert of the needs that only prayer can solve. To be aware and alert of of the things that could distract us from keeping prayer as a priority. And be aware and alert of the spiritual battles that rage all around us. And then with thanksgiving, it's just that thanksgiving should always be a part of our prayer. We thank God for what He has done. We thank God for what He's promised to do. And and I'm beginning to think even more and more we we thank God for what He will do. Uh, Now keep in mind, Paul is not writing to a group of individuals. As Paul writes this, this isn't written to the individual people who live in Colossae. This is the church. So what Paul is saying is to the church, when you gather together, continue earnestly in prayer. Be vigilant in it. Make it it a priority and be aware and alert to pray. There's public prayer. So if a church is going to be to prioritize prayer and continue earnestly in it, then it makes sense. To say that the church will have public prayer. Now what I mean by public prayer is more than praying over a service or praying at the end of a service. What I mean by public prayer is a time when the church stops everything they're doing. And and they just for a time, they make prayer the focus of that service. Now we find that that model frequently in the book of Acts. Acts 1.14, that they all, all of the disciples continued in one accord. In prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, with his brothers. Right. So this is just after Jesus ascended to heaven. Jesus ascends to heaven. The apostles go back. They gather the church together and they pray. In Acts 2, they're waiting for the promise of the Holy Spirit to come. And while they wait, they are in one accord and they pray. In Acts 4, the apostles are threatened. By the religious leaders and told to stop preaching in the name of Jesus. So they gather the church together. They tell them what the religious leader has said. And then they pray. And that's just in the first few chapters of the book of Acts. 
From the very beginning, the church of Jesus Christ has demonstrated the priority of prayer through this public prayer where we stop everything else and we make prayer the focus of what we're doing for a time. Uh, Also, there's passionate prayer. One of my favorite passages of Scripture on prayer has always been James 5, 16 through 18. Uh, James writes, Confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three years and six months. And he prayed again, the heaven gave rain, and the earth produced its fruit. Now there's a lot there we don't have time to get into, but just two quick hits for tonight. First is that Elijah was a guy with a nature like ours. I'm always astounded by that, right? Elijah wasn't a super Christian. He didn't have a super connection. He was like us. He had, I mean, we know from the story of Elijah, he got discouraged, he ran away, he was afraid. He had all of these things, all of the same flaws and struggles and failures that we have. And yet Elijah prayed and and like fire came down from heaven. Elijah was a man of powerful, powerful prayer life. That's an encouraging thought to look at a man like Elijah who prayed as powerfully as he did and know he was like me. I'm like him. It's a powerful thought. Secondly, is that James mentions the fervent prayers of the righteous. Uh, that phrase is translated in several different ways. My favorite comes from a paraphrase Bible that I, come, that I sometimes read. And it says, there is tremendous power released through the passionate, heartfelt prayer of a godly believer. Now, that's my favorite translation of it, I think. Passionate, heartfelt prayer. Because that's really what James is conveying. A lot of times, passionate praying, when we talk about praying passionate, we think about praying loudly. And for sure, loud praying, people can pray passionately and be loud. I'm a loud person, so often I pray loudly. But you don't have to pray loudly to be praying passionately. All you've got to be doing is praying heartfelt prayers. Right? That's the, the sincere prayer from the heart. It can be soft, it can be loud, it can be anything in between. But it has to be more than just going through the motions. It has to be more than just repeating something you heard somebody else say. It has to be truly from you, from your heart, your desire, your needs in life. And then there's private prayer. And a praying church will only be a praying church when it's filled with praying people. The only way we can have prioritized prayer in church is when we as individuals have prioritized prayer in our own lives. The only way we can have passionate prayer in the church is when we as individuals have passionate prayer in our own lives. Whatever we do as a church will only be a reflection of who we are as individuals. So we must pray privately. The Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said that we are to have a time of prayer where we go into a room, we shut the door, and we pray in secret. And really in a lot of ways... It is our private prayer lives that keep us from being hypocrites when we pray in public. Because remember, that's the the pray in private is preceded by don't be a hypocrite. Don't stand out on the street corner and pray out loud where everybody can see you. Now, that's not forbidding praying in public. Because as we just looked at in the book of Acts, they gathered together and prayed publicly often. What he's saying is, make sure that whatever you do in public is only an overflow of what you've already done in private. If I am a person who prays privately, there is nothing hypocritical about praying publicly. I mean, that's just 
the way it is. So if we pray privately, it's a priority. We're passionate there. Then when we gather together and we pray publicly, we pray passionately, we pray as a priority. It is an overflow of who we are. It's not hypocritical. It's not a show. We're not trying to impress anyone. This is who we are. We're men and women of prayer. So when we gather together, it's just going to be a natural thing that we then pray. So Jesus wants us to be a praying church, but He also wants us to be an inclusive church. Look at what He said. It is to be a a house of prayer for all nations. Now, that's an important phrase considering the context of what's going on here. Right? When, when Jesus cleanses the temple, He is cleansing it of the, the shop of money changers and sacrifice sellers. right? They have set up shop in a part of the temple called the court of the Gentiles. Now, the reason this is significant is this was the only place in the entire temple that a Gentile person could gather legally and, and then worship and pray and call upon God. And by setting up shop of the money changers, the the sacrifice sellers and the wares and whatever else that was included in that, by setting this up in the court of the Gentiles, they were preventing Gentile seekers from having a way to meet with God. I mean, imagine, we're here tonight, we're trying to have this service. And yet, meanwhile, right over there, there's somebody exchanging different kinds of money. And over here, there's a pen of goats and other animals where they're saying, no, the one you brought isn't any good, but I'll sell you mine and you can use it. And then over here, there's birds that you can buy. And there's people bartering over there. How, how much worship could we have of God? How focused could we be on Him in that time? All of that would be a distraction. But not only is it just here and there, but imagine it's, it's the whole thing is filled. That as we're gathering together to do this, we're having to step around them because there's so much of it going on. That's the picture. It was pushing out the Gentiles, keeping them from having a place where they could gather and worship and try to, to know God and confess their faith in Him. But this was intentional. The average Jewish person did not care about the Gentiles and considered them to be little more than dogs. As far as most Gentiles were concerned, or most Jews were concerned, God could just condemn all of the Gentiles and send them all to hell. And they'd be fine with that. They really didn't want them in the temple to worship their God anyway. I think a great example of this mindset is the prophet Jonah. Now as a kid, I remember being taught in children's church that Jonah fled from Nineveh. Because he feared the Ninevites. He was afraid that when he went and began to preach, they would kill him. So I grew up most of my life thinking that was the reality. But that's not the reality. Jonah fled from the presence of God, the Bible says. Ran away from Nineveh, not because he feared the Ninevites, but because he feared God. And what did he fear about God? He feared God because the Bible says God was merciful. God abounded in loving kindness and God was gracious and he was a God who relented from doing harm. Jonah was afraid God would forgive the Ninevites. He was afraid God would not judge them if they repented. When God showed mercy to the Ninevites, it made Jonah angry. So much so that he told God he would rather die than to live in a world where God would forgive the Ninevites. 
That's the world. That's the Jonah's mindset. That is the basic mindset the religious leaders had when they set up shop in the court of the Gentiles. They did not want any non-Jew to know God, love God, to serve God, to be blessed by God, be forgiven by God. But Jesus said God's desire was always for His house to be inclusive. For it to be a house of prayer for all nations. Now this is always God's intent. Here's a verse, and it's not in your notes because I actually didn't come across it until my daily Bible reading after everything was printed out. So if you want to write it down, it is 2 Chronicles 6, 32-33. 2 Chronicles 6, 32 through 33. And this is a part of Solomon's prayer as he dedicated the newly built temple. Right? So keep that in mind. The temple is freshly built. It is being consecrated to God. Solomon prays this. Moreover, concerning a foreigner who is not of your people Israel, but who comes from a far country for the sake of your great name and your mighty hand and your outstretched arm. When they come and they pray in this temple, then you hear from heaven your dwelling place and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you. That all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you, as do your people of Israel. That may know this temple which I have built is called by your name. I mean, the temple is being dedicated to God and Solomon's prayer is when people hear about how awesome you are, And they come here and they call upon you. Hear their prayer. Answer their prayer. So they will know there is a God in heaven. That's always been God's intent. He's always intended for all people to be welcomed in His house. All people, regardless of nationality, social class, culture, or even religion, should be welcomed in God's house. And this is an extremely important point when you live in a town that has 30 plus languages spoken in our public high school. We live in a town where the world has come to us. All nations are here. And all nations should be able to walk into our church and feel welcomed. Regardless of their nationality. Regardless of their skin color. Regardless of their social class. Regardless of their culture. Or even regardless of their religion. The way it should work. A woman in a hijab should be as welcomed in our church. As a man wearing a make America great again hat. If both came in. Both should be as welcomed. As greeted. As treated nicely. As leave feeling that they are as welcome here. One just like the other. Should not be a distinction. Now, is this who we are as a church? Are we a praying church? Are we an inclusive church? Is this who we want to be as a church? Do we want to be who Jesus wants us to be? Because He wants us to be a praying church. He wants us to be an inclusive church. Let's take a few minutes and we'll pray. And we'll stay where we are and just pray that we can be the kind of church that Jesus wants us to be.
Heavenly Father, we love you tonight. You are great and awesome and worthy of our praise and worthy of our devotion. We are thankful. Lord, for the opportunity to gather here to study your word, to call upon you in prayer and to know that you're here, know that you care about what's going on in our lives, in our church, in, in all that we, that we deal with on a daily basis. Father, we come tonight and we do desire to be the kind of church that Jesus wants us to be. We want to be what he wants us to be. So help us, Lord, that we would be a praying church. Lord, we would pray as a priority, Lord, in our private lives, and we would pray as a priority when we gathered together. Lord, I, it is so easy to not make prayer a priority and it be okay, it seem okay. Help us, Lord, not to be that way. Help us, Lord, that we would, that we would long to pray, that, Lord, when we were on our own in our morning and our private devotions, whenever we do it, that there would be a longing from Your Spirit, a stirring for us to be a people of prayer, to one-on-one to -on -one in that time to spend time with You, call upon You. Lord, just to enjoy Your presence. And then when we gather together, that there would be a longing, Lord, to gather with our brothers and sisters in Christ, to, to lift up needs and concerns and to, to focus on You in that way, Father. And Lord, we, we do want to see You answer in power. We do want to see you do great things in our church and through our church. But Lord, more than anything, we want you. Lord, let our time of prayer connect us to you. Let our time of prayer make us aware of your presence in our lives. Let our time of prayer, God, cause us to love you more. To be more willing to do your will. To just have a greater desire for you. Guide us, Lord, that we would be an inclusive church. Lord, we live in a town where so many people of different cultures, religions, are all around us, Lord. And God, it is easy for us to be afraid of those who are different. Lord, the, the news is always trying to make us afraid of those who aren't like us, regardless of which side of the aisle that sort of comes from. But God, help us to reject that. Help us to not let the news media inform how we see other humans. Let us not let the news media uh, determine how we treat other humans who are made in your image. Lord, let us... Seek to be like Jesus. Let us seek to be who you want us to be. Lord, as we go out, let us care for people, regardless of their religion, regardless of their nationality, regardless of their skin color. If they were to come here, God, let them feel welcome. Let them feel cared for. Let it be where they would have an opportunity to hear about you, to know you. They would come to love you and serve you with all of their heart. Have your way, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. The next part is actually on the second page, the back page. We had to go out of order in the way I wanted to do this. And it's a prayer list. I'm a big fan of prayer lists. I like lists. Um, I've liked them since the first time I came across a prayer list as I was trying to, to learn how to pray. Uh, I like the way they help me to be specific over general. I, I like the way they help me to stay focused and not ramble. And I like the way they help me to cover all of my bases. Now the prayer list is similar to one we've used in the church before. Uh, we every year or so we put one. I put one of these out, and it has a just a specific things to pray for each and every day of the week. Um, and so I'm not going to go through all of them because a lot of them again are, are things that we've seen before. But there's just a few I want to point out that I guess are new. So I want to kind of give you an idea of what the idea behind it is. If you look on the Sunday, the second one says pray for liberty in worship, preaching, and responding. Uh, in the passage, 2 Corinthians 3.17 says, Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. Now, the idea of liberty in worship and liberty in preaching and liberty in responding is just that. Is that there is freedom. 
There's freedom to sing. There's freedom to sing out. We don't have to worry about what people think. We're not worried about whether we sound off-key, what other people around us are thinking. We have the liberty to raise our hands if we want to. We have the liberty to worship the Lord and however the Spirit is leading us. Liberty in preaching is just really what I would think of as the unction of the Holy Spirit to, to guide and to direct, to, to say what needs to be said without fear of anything or being bound up in like my mind sometimes gets distracted and being able to just stay on task and say what God would have me to say. And then liberty to respond. Uh, in, in our church, one of the things that we, we are lacking liberty is the freedom to respond. It is We don't do altar calls anymore, largely because people just didn't come forward. People were afraid a lot of times what others would think, what others might say, uh, and, and so they didn't do it. So we don't do that, but we still have that time of response. But in that time, there to be liberty for people to, to do business with God as He has dealt with them. Not to worry about getting the buffet. Not to worry about anything else. But in that moment, in that time, to just respond to the Lord and whatever it is they need to respond about. The second one, the next one underneath that is pray that Word and Spirit. Pray Word and Spirit would work powerfully in our church. We've talked about that in weeks previous when we talked about Habakkuk's prayer to do it again. Word and Spirit that the Word would go forth with power. And that the Holy Spirit would move and, and act upon the Word to set captives free, open spiritually blind eyes, heal broken hearts, and do things that could not be explained outside of the mighty move of God. Pray that that would happen in our church. Pray deep conviction in people's lives. We know what that is, but we live in a day, and it's not just our church or our town, it's just everywhere. Where people, uh, I think it's Isaiah says, they no longer blush at sin. And that's just kind of where we are. People's hearts are hard. They're not bothered by the sin in their life. And so they're, they're not convicted. They're not bothered when they preached on, when it's preached against. So pray that people would experience a deep conviction from the Holy Spirit when it's needed. I mean, I don't want, you don't want for me to try to be the Holy Spirit and bring conviction. But when they need that deep conviction, the Holy Spirit would bring it into their lives. Pray that lives would be radically transformed. Right? Not just... People pray a prayer, but radically transformed like Paul going from a persecutor to an apostle. Right? Somebody who's changed truly, deeply, legitimately changed in their lives. Um, on Monday, that we would be soul conscious. I, I like that phrase. I, I stole it from somewhere. But John 4, Jesus tells the disciples, they're, they're sitting outside a, uh, the woman at the well. She's gone into town, Samaritan woman, she's coming back out with all the people. Jesus said, don't say it's three months into the harvest. Look, the fields are already wide into harvest. Right? So all around us, there are people who need Jesus. And all around us, there are people who are ready to receive Jesus. They're ready to hear a witness, a testimony, uh, a truth, a prayer. And what we need is to be soul conscious, to see, to see the harvest that's around us. Um, to be spirit-filled, that we as a church would be spirit-filled, spirit-led, and spirit-empowered. Right? And all that we do, not just here on Sundays and Wednesdays, but Monday morning when we go to work, that we would be led of the Spirit, filled with the Spirit, and empowered by the Spirit to do whatever it is that He would be leading us to do. Tuesday, the first two have a righteous influence everywhere we go. It's based on what we talked about Sunday, being salt, that as we go, to our jobs, to Walmart, to where were our kids' sporting events, to the gym, whatever we do, somehow we would be able to have a righteous influence on the world around us. The next part of that is to have a righteous testimony, to be light 
is to be a testimony that people would know that we are followers of Jesus in such a way that it would bring glory to God by the lives that we live. Now, you notice I used also Philippians 2, 14 through 16. And that's a passage where we're told to do all things without griping and complaining. So that, he says, we will be lights that shine in the darkness. You think about our world. Right? Just uh, if you're on social media, how much is griping today about the election results? Right? I mean, people are always griping about something. So who stands out in the world? Somebody that gripes really good? Or somebody who doesn't gripe? Somebody who doesn't gripe? Let's be the people that don't gripe so that we shine like lights in a dark and a dying world. If you drop down to Wednesday, that we would desire God more than anything based upon Psalm 63. Um, It's one of my favorite psalms. It probably is my favorite psalm. But the picture in Psalm 63 is desiring God that He's in a parched and a weary land where there is no water. And the picture is that there's nothing on this earth that would satisfy. Only God can. But pray to have that kind of desire for the Lord where, where the stuff that pulls at us, because the world pulls, it seeks to satisfy. It seeks to fulfill us. But it's really not going to, not ever. So pray that that we would understand that we would desire God and seek Him for that satisfaction, that fulfilling, and not anything else. Uh, if you look down to second from the last on Wednesday, pray we would embrace Scripture as right and real. We've talked about that quite a bit um, in, on Wednesday nights, but right and real, the idea behind that, that it's right, that what Scripture says is true. I mean, that, that's really the real... that. Whatever it says about morals, that's the the right answer. Whatever it says about priorities, that's the right answer, right? So it's right. But also that it's real. right? Because we not only want to believe that it's right, we want to believe that it's real. Because the easy thing for us to do is to look at some of the things in Scripture and say, well, that's way up there. And what that is, that's a pie in the sky. Man, that would be great if it worked out that way. But the reality is down here. But it's not that way. What Scripture says is right is also real. So like Scripture says, I can do all things through Christ. That's not a in a perfect world. That's, that's real. I really can do anything that Jesus wants me to do. Follow the Spirit so you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. That's not a in a perfect world. Everything would go right and I could do that. No, I really can. Walk in the Spirit in such a way that I don't fulfill the lust of the flesh. So pray that we as a church would embrace it's real. Or it's right and it's real. And Thursday, the last two, pray that God would use our church to transform our community. That's something we're actually going to look at in the next part. But in Acts 19, Paul takes the gospel to a town and church is formed. And after a little while, the church is sharing the gospel and reaching people to such an extent that the idol makers get together and they're like, dude, we're going out of business. There's nobody buying our idols anymore. They've all turned to this Jesus. We're, we're going to go bankrupt and nobody's worshiping our goddess. Right? People who were involved in witchcraft are burning their books. How awesome would it be for God to do that here? Pray that God would use our church to transform our community. And, and this phrase, the next phrase, the last one, I love that phrase. I read it somewhere. Pray that God would use our church to plunder hell in order to populate heaven. John 3.18, John 3.36 both basically say 
those who believe in Jesus are not condemned. Those who do not believe are condemned already. Right? So they are condemned. They're going to hell. What do we want God to do? We want God to plunder that. To take that condemnation away. To give them salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. That he would plunder people going to hell. So he could populate with people that are going to heaven. Pray that God would use our church to do that. Uh, Friday, the very last one. Pray that we would passionately serve Jesus. Romans 12, 11 says uh, not to be lagging in diligence, but fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. 1 Corinthians 15, 58 says be steadfast, immovable, always abounding with the work of the Lord, knowing your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Pray that as a church we would be passionate in our service to Jesus at all times. Right? That we would, we would be that fervent in spirit, steadfast, immovable, always abounding. Because we know, we know that what we're doing is worthwhile. And it would be, whether in sharing the gospel, praying, reading our Bibles, gathering to worship, whatever we do for the Lord, it would be done fervently, passionately, not, well, I guess a better. Right. And then Saturday, the first one, pray that we would never quench the Spirit, quench what the Holy Spirit wants to do in us, through us, or for us. Paul says, do not quench the Spirit. Spirit's always at work in our lives. He's always speaking through the Word. He's always converting us. He's always sanctifying us. He's always encouraging us. He's always leading us. He's always empowering us. He's always doing something in us. And what we have to do is be careful not to quench that, not to resist it. If He's speaking to us through the Word, it's easy to quench it by saying, oh, I, don't really, I see how that would apply, but I don't really want to do that. Or, feel like the Holy Spirit's just leading us, go pray right now. And say, oh, I, don't, I don't want to go pray right now. I'm, I'm watching TV or I'm doing this or I'm doing something else. Or you're reading the Bible and you come across something and just a person pops in your mind to share that with them. You say, oh, I don't want to. That might sound weird if I were just send a Bible verse and say, here's what, you know, I was studying that came across this, so I'm not going to do that. Don't quench the Spirit. Whatever He's leading us to do, whatever He's working in our lives to do, surrender to it. Follow Him. Don't quench the Spirit. Pray that as a church we would be Spirit-filled, Spirit-led and never quench the Spirit in any way. And then the last one is pray that we would be a beacon of hope in our community. The verses are interesting. I, I, I had never noticed this until I was putting this together. But Romans 15, 4. Uh, and to me this connects back to what I was talking about, about Word and Spirit. Right? Word and Spirit. We want Word and Spirit to work together in our church to do things that can't be explained by any natural means. Where does hope come from, according to the Bible? It comes from Word and Spirit, Romans 15, 4. Whatever things were written, were written for our learning, that we, through the patience, the covenant of Scripture, might have hope. Romans 15, 13, that God is the God of hope, who fills us with all joy and peace and believing that we would abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. So how are we going to be a beacon of hope in our community? Word and Spirit, working together powerfully in the church, it's going to shine out. People are, are desperate for something that's real. Not a better program, not a slicker service. Something that's real that will help them, that will change their lives, set them free from captivity, help them to understand what happens after they die. All of that is found in His Word and Spirit work together. I mean, that, that's how that happens. We want to be a beacon of hope. We need Word and Spirit to work together powerfully in our church to do things that can't be explained away by natural means. And then that hope can become an anchor for the soul. Because, I mean, the world... The world's scary. 
The world's filled with storms that toss us about. How do we anchor that so that we can stay anchored to Christ? Hope. So pray that we would be a beacon of hope in our community. And, and, and my thing is, let's commit to praying specifically for our church. These things, at least the things that I've mentioned on the list, every day, right? There's something for every day of the week. Pray those. For the Sunday, get up early and pray them before church. Right? I mean, I know God is beyond time, but I don't think praying after church for something that happened in church to happen is necessarily the way it's going to work. But pray, get up, pray before church that God would do these things in our service today. And specifically, I would like to challenge you to pray at least 10 minutes a day for our church. I mean, the, uh, there's five or six prayer requests on every day. It would not be hard to spend ten minutes a day on those things. To take the time to think of specific ways it would apply to maybe look up the verses and pray the verses back to God. Uh, and say, God, do this because that's what you said you would do. Something like that. Right? So, ten minutes a day praying for our church. Now let's take time right now uh, to pray. And if you want to come to the altar, you can. You can pray where you are. But let's just spend a few minutes praying uh, specifically for our church. Something that can hinder churches from being all that Jesus intends for them to be 
is what I, you call an inferiority complex. This is really common, I think, in American churches, and it's even more common in small churches. Uh, we begin to think we're not good enough, we're not able, that for whatever reason, whether it's all the things in America or just a small church or a small town, there's no way to have a, an impact for Christ in the way that we are. Uh, and, and honestly, I, I, I think, as I was thinking about this, I really think as Free Will Baptist is just a general our, our movement kind of has a bit of an inferiority complex. It's not uncommon to hear free will Baptist talk in ways that it's just like, woe is us. We just sort of can't and things aren't going to happen. And, and, and I don't know why. It's just the, the way it seems to be. And I think what happened overall, though, is that we've bought into the satanic lie that the church of Jesus Christ, that it's poor, it's pitiful, and it's powerless. Right, now, this lie that it asserts that the church is basically just trying to mind its own business and get by, but it's mercilessly attacked by the world, the flesh, and the devil. Now, this is a, a satanic lie. Right? I say it's satanic because Satan is a liar and the father of lies that seeks to steal, kill, and destroy. Right? And, and if you can convince a church, a group of people, that they can't accomplish things in their community... That nothing will ever change. That this is the way it will always be. That uh, this is just woe is us. Well, he's, he's stolen the impact and the influence that Jesus intends. But he's, he's killed the ability to make a difference in the world. And really he's destroyed hope. And the church just sort of groans by most of its life. But right? it is a satanic thing. And it's a lie. Because that's not, that's not real. But when we want to know what the church is like, not poor and pitiful and powerless. We have to look at what does Jesus say about the church? How does Jesus view the church? And there's a lot that would go into it, but there was quickly just a few. Right? That one, Jesus started the church, right? So the church is important to Jesus. Right? Matthew 16 and 18 talks about him building the church. Uh, it also, like Acts 20, 28, that he, he gave his life, he shed his blood for the church. I mean, that's a, that's a significant investment by Jesus on behalf of the church. Surely he's not going to give his life and, and start the church for it to be poor and pitiful and powerless, is he? Not when he is Lord over all and the King of kings and the Lord of lords that comes to, to seek and to save those who are lost. Surely, surely his church isn't going to be poor and pitiful and powerless, is it? Jesus loves the church. If I have read it once, I've read it a million times, that if the church was just more like Jesus, then the world would like us better. But the world, one, doesn't like Jesus. But the world likes their idea of who Jesus is. They like a Jesus that's basically a hippie that just says, be happy and I'm okay with it. But that's not the Jesus of the Bible. The Jesus of the Bible calls on us to deny ourselves, take up our crosses, to love even when it's hard, all of those sort of things. But, but the world, what subtly goes on when the world says if you're more like Jesus is, and you see it along those same lines, is Jesus wouldn't be in the church. Now if Jesus was here today, he wouldn't be in a church. No, no, no. To that I say wrong. Jesus loves the church. 
Jesus loved His church. Make no mistakes. Our church isn't perfect. The Nazarene church isn't perfect. The Pentecostal church isn't perfect. And people within all of our churches are going to do things that, that are often silly and wrong and rude and hateful. We're just people. But make no mistake, Jesus loves this church. Jesus loves that church. Jesus loves that church. He doesn't love some future version of the church that would get its act together. He loves the messy church that's struggling and trying and makes mistakes. Jesus loves this church. And if Jesus loves us and is invested in us, surely, surely we're not meant to be poor and pitiful and powerless, are we? Surely we're not meant to just be wretched, miserable, blind, poor and naked. No, there's much more. Much more than that. Jesus works to make a glorious church, Ephesians tells us. Think about that. You ever think about our church, that we're a glorious church? That's what Jesus is working on us to be. That He's he's at work in our church, in you and in me. in, In other people that aren't here tonight, but He's working in us to make us what we ought to be as a church. And His goal, His end of it is a glorious church. Think about that. Do you ever think about our church as a glorious church? Glorious in the eyes of our Savior. That's what He imagines. That's what He sees. That's what He's working to produce, to make us into. Surely, if Jesus is working in us to make us a glorious church, Surely we're not poor and pitiful and wretched and miserable and blind and naked and powerless, are we? Surely the work of Jesus in our lives and in our midst doesn't leave us there. Of course not. Jesus conquers through His church. The gates of hell shall not prevail against the church. We are not poor and pitiful and powerless. Church of Jesus Christ is the only organization in the world that Jesus said the gate of hell will not prevail against. It doesn't matter who's elected. It doesn't matter whether the world likes the church or not. The world will not overcome The church of Jesus Christ. The gates of hell itself cannot stop the church. And and I know we're running short of time, but I want you to think about something. Often what we do is we associate that promise with the promise of protection. We're going to stay huddled in our church and hell is going to hurl at us and Jesus is going to protect us. And that's a great truth. That's a great picture. But the gates of hell will not prevail. Do you use gates on an assault or are gates used to defend? Gates are used to defend. The picture isn't that hell assaults the church and Jesus protects us. The picture is Jesus uses his church to assault hell and the church prevails. That is not a poor, pitiful, miserable, wretched, blind, naked, powerless entity we're a part of. Jesus saves people through His church. 
we don't have time to look at 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11, but Jesus lists all these sins, homosexuality and all of these things. And he says to the Corinthians, and such were some of you. But you're saved. You're sanctified. And there is, there's no one in our community beyond the power of salvation found in Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter if they're gay. It doesn't matter if they're transgendered. It doesn't matter if they're involved in witchcraft, if they're Muslims, if they're involved in Wicca. None of that matters. The gospel of Jesus Christ is greater than all of that. That's part of the reason the church isn't poor and pitiful and powerless. The gospel is the power of God to save those who believe. Believe that. And then Jesus transforms communities through the church. And we talked about Acts 19. A whole city. Bigger than Gaiman. Upset and transformed. Not by politics. Not by protests. By the preaching of the gospel. The church being the church. And those who profited from human slavery to sin were put out of business. The church of Jesus Christ has been the greatest force for good the world has ever known. Where the church goes, lives are changed. Communities are transformed. This is always what God has done, what Jesus has done. So no, the church is not poor and pitiful and powerless. We are not trying to mind our own business. We are doing everything we can to turn the world upside down like the first century church did. We are not, we want the Jehovah's Witness to be brought to Jesus Christ. We want the Mormons to be brought to Jesus Christ. We want the homosexuals to be brought to Jesus Christ. We want the transgender people to be brought to Jesus Christ. We want those that have had abortions to be brought to Jesus Christ. We want everybody. We are doing all that we can to upset the apple cart of the world in every way. By reaching into their darkness with the light of the gospel. And drawing people out of the muck and the mire. And letting Jesus save them, change them. And set them on fire for Him. That is not a poor and a pitiful and a miserable, powerless church. So here's the thing. That's what the Bible says about the church who Jesus sees us as being. Do we believe that? Do we believe that those Bible verses, those stories are true and they really happened? Do we believe that Jesus still does those things? But here's the big question. Do we believe that Jesus can do these things in our church? Not, not some big church out there. Not Rick Warren's church. Not a church where Billy Graham preached at. Not John MacArthur's church. Our church. Northridge Free Will Baptist Church in Guyman, Oklahoma. Do we believe that Jesus started this church? Do we believe that Jesus loves this church? Do we believe that Jesus is working to make this a glorious church? Do we believe that Jesus will conquer through this church? Do we believe that Jesus will save the lost through this church? Do we believe that Jesus can transform our community through this church? I heard a guy this week say that sometimes the promises are bigger than the proof. 
And we have to believe the promises anyway. That's a great picture, I think. Because those promises, those are bigger than the proof that we've seen. But that's still the word. It's still the very words of God. What he has done, what he does do, what he could do, what he wants to do. Will we believe the promises? Will we trust that that's right and that's real? Oh, how we need to. I believe. I believe what he has done, he does do. And I believe all of those things are true of the church in general and of our church in specific. We need to believe it as well. Let's take a few minutes where we are. We're going to pray to view the church this way and then pray to view our church this way. Father, thank you. Thank you for your love and your mercy. Thank you for your grace and your goodness. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your spirit. Thank you for Jesus, what he has done for us on the cross, what he does in us and through us, for us today. Father, we we ask you to do a mighty work in our hearts. Lord, that we would not have an inferiority complex about our church and what you want to do in our midst and in our town. Make us know. I mean, just know to the in the core of our being. This is your church. Do you love this church? Do you are working to make us a glorious church? That you're going to conquer through this church. You're going to save through this church. You are going to transform our community through this church. God, let us believe it. Let us pray it. Let us look forward to it happening. Let us expect it, God. Lord, in any way that there is a, a poor, pitiful, powerless mindset that we have about our church and what you are going to do, Lord, burn that out of us. And Lord, we haven't seen a lot of these things come to pass. The promises are bigger than the proof, but God, we believe anyway. We believe your word is real and that this is going to come to pass. We believe Gaiman can be transformed and it will be transformed. We believe the lost in our town will be saved. We believe the gates of hell will not prevail against us. We believe you are working to make this a glorious church. We believe you love this church. We believe that you have started this church and it is your church. Let us live, act, make decisions about who we are and how we are as a church based upon these truths. Have your way, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.